and welcome to this edition of NAESP's Advocacy Podcast. Uh, with us today, we have Michelle Young, who is a uh, professor of uh, educational leadership and policy at the University of Virginia. She's also the executive director of the University Council for Educational Administration, UCEA. Uh, Michelle, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for joining. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's jump in. Um, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about uh, your role uh, at UCEA. What is UCEA and what are some of the things that, uh, that you all pay attention to? Sure. Um, UCEA is a consortium of universities and those universities are committed to excellence in leadership research and preparation. Um, the organization was founded back in 1954 to support inter-university collaboration around education leadership research and development. And over the course of its history, it has led some significant efforts to improve the preparation and practice of K-12 leaders. That's kind of the key focus. Um, and as executive director, I lead and support a number of research and development projects that are aimed to build program capacity so that then our programs can build leaders that can improve the capacity of their schools. Um, for example, um, most recently I served on the P PSEL, the Professional Standards for Education Leadership Steering Committee, and I chaired the effort then to develop an aligned set of standards for leadership preparation. Great, great. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh, those PSEL standards um, here in this podcast. Really looking forward to that. Um, just on the the sort of UCEA and, and sort of your members. Um, so generally speaking, we're we're talking about um, schools of education that prepare uh, that prepare principals. Is that right? Yep, that's right. And um, it's important to point out though that there are close to 800 university preparation programs across the United States, and they are located within a variety of different types of institutions that have um, different types of missions and purposes. And the UCEA institutions are primarily in research institutions. Um, we have 100 members, so only 100 of those 800 or so um, are UCEA institutions, and they um, choose to belong to UCEA because of their commitment to um, making a, a positive impact on leadership development and research. And there's um, a review process that we use um, when anybody applies for membership. Okay, okay, got it. So that, that's important to know. So not, not, not every um, principal preparation program um, is a member um, as part of UCEA. Exactly, yeah. Nope. Okay. Great. So speaking of, um, I guess, principal preparation, I guess um, let's, uh, let's pretend you're, you're somewhere, uh, Michelle, you're at a conference somewhere. Uh, I, know you, yeah, I know you travel quite a bit and you're kind of traveling the country and, and doing a lot of that. So somebody comes up to you and, and they say, you know, what is the, what is the, the kind of current state of, of principal preparation in the U.S.? How would you, how would you describe it? Um, well, I'd say, wow, that is a really broad question, first of all. <laughs> um, and there are a couple of things that you probably should know when you're, when you're wondering what the state of leadership preparation is. Um, the, the first thing that I would want to, uh, people to understand is that there are a significant number of programs, just like I described to you, that, um, and that they have um, a varying capacity and a varying degree of quality. And... Um, Within those institutions, too, we have um, a, a 
various um, levels of productivity. So there are some institutions um, that will produce anywhere um, between you know, 25 to 50 um, leadership degrees in a year uh, for the principalship. And then there are other institutions where their uh, cohort size is significantly larger. Um, some produce around 250, some produce over 700, and there are a few um, very large programs um, that actually produce sometimes over a thousand candidates per year. So you can imagine that there's a big difference between an institution that has a cohort of 25 and is focusing on those 25 versus an institution that is spreading itself pretty thinly by trying to produce over a thousand candidates a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a yeah, lot. And this was, yeah, exactly, exactly. And just um, the, the research that we've been doing, Danny, around um, what makes a program of high quality um, has a lot of relevance here as well. So um, in an institution, if you're looking for um, markers of quality in what they're doing, you're going to be looking for district university partnerships. That's very important. Um, and partnerships does not mean advisory boards or kind of parallel play. It, partnerships mean that people from the university and folks from the district are in conversation about the type of leaders that they want to build. They are talking about what that curriculum and those powerful learning experiences need to look like, how candidates are going to be assessed, um, how they're going to be selected, and how they're going to be placed um, in internships as well as placed within eventually in their own buildings. What you'd also be looking for um, is around that selection and recruitment process, that it's very intentional. You know, most programs have a year, sometimes they have two years, but it's a finite set of resources. So you want to be very selective about who you're actually going to provide an opportunity to engage in that. Um, particularly if you're in an institution where you're doing a cohort of 25 every year, you're going to be very careful about who you're um, letting into your program, um, particularly if you're working with a district, they're going to want to be very picky about it as well. Um, that's probably not the case in those institutions where you've got a thousand candidates a year. Um, another thing that you want to be looking for is a really high quality internship. And that internship should be supervised by an educational leader who has a, um, a record of success. We don't want individuals who are going to be um, providing a negative role model. We want people who are providing a very positive model of what an educational leader looks like and who knows also how to mentor. So that person should also have some um, preparation and experience in terms of how to actually be a good field supervisor. Um, just a couple of other things that you would want to look at, and these are all, again, kind of based on um, kind of the, the best um, research that we have available to us at this time around quality leadership preparation would be intentionally designed programs so they know what they're trying to do and they've mapped um, the type of leadership they're trying to build throughout their curriculum. They've got curriculum maps throughout their powerful learning experiences, throughout their internship. Qualified faculty and what I mean by this is a mix of individuals who've got strong experience in the field and strong understanding of the research base and they can bring those together 
in the way that they develop the program and deliver the program. Um, that their curriculum would be standards-based. You would want to make sure that they are representing, uh, reflecting rather, the PSEL and the NELP standards, and possibly also um, state or local leadership standards, depending on the size of their district. Um, and then finally, that they're engaging in candidate assessment, and then they're using that data to help the candidate grow and also to help improve the program. So those are a few things that I would want people to understand when they're trying to get a sense of if a program is high quality and a program is not of high quality, what they might be looking for. Now, of course, as an outsider, they're probably thinking, well, how in the world would I actually know this? Um, there are some states like Illinois that actually have um, put in their state code the requirements to have some of these quality features, such as district partnerships, and high quality internship and selection processes. Hmm. There aren't too many states that have actually done that. There are just a handful. Tennessee is another one. Mm -hmm. um, another way that you might be able to figure this out though is whether or not these programs are accredited by, um, by CAPE or by the state. Um, and not all states accreditation systems are the same. However, uh, even though states have the authority to approve programs, some of them do not have the authority to review them and then approve them again. Hmm. Or if they do, they don't always necessarily use that authority very well. So I hope that kind of gives you a sense of what the state of leadership preparation program. Yeah, yeah, no, that was super helpful. Um, I appreciate that. I want to I want to stick with uh, one thing that you you talked about there though, which is this idea of, of partnerships. Mm -hmm. um, and what can you give an example of what uh, folks in the district, maybe superintendents or sort of district leaders, might be seeing um, in principles, sort of the the folks in practice. And what a, a real authentic partnership would look like where those folks could have conversations then um, with the principal preparation um, uh, program, the provider, to kind of have that feedback loop uh, to say, you know, here's what we're seeing and, and you know, here the, you know, here's some changes or some ideas that, that, that we would like to see. Like, what's an example of, of something that, 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 that folks might be seeing on the ground and then what that sort of conversation would look like? Um. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And um, when universities and districts have really strong uh, partnerships, part of what makes it work is having that kind of ongoing conversation. Many times that is um, part of a memorandum of understanding that they've put together. So they've said, okay, we're going to go into partnership together. And part of what's going to make that work is that we're going to have this ongoing conversation. We're going to sit down and we're going to think through together how we're going to do selection. Then we're going to do selection together. We're going to think through what this um, curriculum mapping is going to look like. And we're going to think through, you know, who it is that's going to be actually teaching these courses and how we're going to assess candidates and when that assessment um, data is actually going to come back um, to the candidates. But then also when we are going to sit down together, to talk about that data and how we're going to use that data to to inform any kind of program changes that we want to make together. Now you can imagine that um, you know you could put together a, a set of uh, you know a calendar um, that would you know possibly you know work pretty well for 
um, certain individuals from the university and from the district to, to actually make that happen. What's important is that you designate who that's actually going to be, and then that both of those organizations stick to that designation. Hmm. Because um, having folks change out midstream really can interrupt um, what uh, what the goals and um, and the and the um, and the progress. That, uh, that those who are engaged in the program planning and program development and delivery are trying to do. So it's really, really important to have some stability in terms of the folks who are involved in this. A really good example would be um, the University of Denver and the Denver Public Schools. They have a really significant long-term um, partnership. In fact, that partnership has been going since the early 2000s. Um, Denver Public Schools has a large number, getting close to, I think, 275 of its building and district level leaders are graduates of what is called the Ritchie Program out of the University of Denver. And what has been really important to the success of that program has been the ongoing participation of um, Suzanne, Susan Korach from the University of Denver. And then over the course of the program, two particular individuals who've been very involved um, from Denver Public Schools. And, um, you know, when the switch went between the, the first woman, um, Maureen, to the second um, person from the district, um, Sandy, the, um, it was really important that, you know, that kind of a, a succession went really smoothly so that that progress that was made with that partnership so the ongoing improvement of the program, making sure it met the district needs, um, was was really well supported. Does that's that help? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, that's that's really fascinating, and and sort of that you see it time and time again. Whether it's something like a partnership like this, or just other other sort of state programs, is that that institution that's that institutional knowledge um, can mm -hmm. easily be lost, and sort of gains that are made in terms of sort of building those partnerships um is is halted um and so that's that's in a really that's really an important message um i guess since we're since we're talking about it so j just since it's something uh, certainly a, a trend um just wanted to kind of get your you your take on it um as it relates to sort of districts uh is just is just residencies and, and and principal residencies and and how you're seeing you know what's the what's the trend with principal residencies and and, and that requirement um, among providers and in our our districts sort of asking for for that and, and encouraging um, uh, preparation programs to have that sort of clinical based uh, preparation as 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 part of uh, the experience that uh, principal candidates receive uh, yes absolutely the clinical experience um, sometimes called a residency sometimes called an internship um, is a critical part of the leadership preparation experience. And in fact, um, candidates say this, um, research has shown that candidates say this, um, research has shown that districts have said this, and, um, and higher education faculty also agree that this is sort of a, a critical piece. Because it's, it's the part where you are able to apply the knowledge and the skills that you're learning um, through your coursework into an actual authentic leadership um, experience. Some of the things that are, um, are really important about that experience include um, getting out of your own building. 
And I think that this is the thing that is a challenge for a number of leadership candidates, particularly if they're not in a, um, in a program that is based uh, off of a university district partnership where the district understands how important it is for that individual to um, have an opportunity to lead in a different um, in a different context. And there are a couple of reasons why that's important. Um, Oftentimes in your own in your own context, it's um, it's sometimes difficult to step out of the role that you've been playing for you know a number of years. Um, but then also it's um, sometimes individuals uh, may have a group of planned experiences, but um, because there are other priorities in the schools, sometimes they don't actually get to um, enact. Um, the different um, experiences that have been planned for them. So getting outside of your building uh, makes it much more likely that you are going to have the, the series of experiences that research has shown are really important. Um, a second attribute of a high quality experience is not just getting out of your building, but having a couple of different opportunities um, in a couple of different environments. So that you are not just expanding your perspective from the classroom to the building, but you're also getting a sense of what leadership looks like in a variety of different um, contexts. Mm -hmm. And that may be, for example, if I've been an elementary teacher, um, it may be that I'm going to um, go into a very diverse um, uh, school and um, which is similar to the one I worked in and then I go into a school that is fairly homogeneous um, It also might mean that I go into an elementary school but then I also spend some time in a middle school um, or in an early childhood center so that I am able to actually see um, what are the different challenges what are what are the different norms what is the culture like there that could be very different from um, one context to another um, and then I already mentioned how important it is to have a really high quality um, mentor. Um, this has been uh, shown over and over again. You know, you it's not just about having a, a strong role model, but it's also about the, the off the conversations that you have about um, decisions that are made or um, or any type of you know uh, questions that people have about you know why this and not that. Um, if you have an individual who's very thoughtful and who is a good mentor and coach, those conversations are going to be so much more substantive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, that, that's, that's fascinating. Um, two things I wanted to follow up on just um, quick, quickly on the, the residency thing. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it all makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, learning, learning on the ground, um, being, in, being in schools, um, learning from a high quality mentor versus, you know, sitting in a classroom and in, in reading about leadership, um, that that all makes a lot of sense. So why is uh, why aren't sort of um, why isn't clinical based practice, I guess, the across the board norm? Why isn't it the sort of um, I guess just part of the experience that that principal candidates receive, kind of no matter where they are and in 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 what preparation program you know they go through? Why is it why is it not sort of widespread? That's such a, that is such an important question, and I think that the answer to it is is um, reflects the priority that we've placed on leadership in general in this country. 
Um, when we look at the, the latest ESSA um, legislation, and the, everyone was very excited about this notion of a 3% set aside that would be set aside specifically for leadership development. But then when we saw the different plans that were put in place by states, um, you know, not every state took the 3% set aside, and then even those states that did take the 3% set aside um, used language of educators so that they could potentially include education leadership, but it wasn't necessarily strategically um, targeting leadership development in the way that people hoped that it would be with the 3% set aside. So a parallel issue is happening with regard to leadership preparation. Um, there are very few states that um, provide any kind of um, significant resources for candidates uh, to support a residency or an internship. Um, in those places where residencies and internships are full-time and are supported, um, you're looking at fairly large and well-resourced districts. Mm. In the rest of the um, in the rest of the country, um, it's primarily individuals are you know paying for their degree and they are teaching at the same time. And it's very difficult to uh, be teaching full-time and be in an internship full-time. In fact, it's typically impossible to do that. Yeah. So until we as a country decide that leadership development is essential, you know, we've already decided that leadership is essential. We, we understand the impact that leaders have on, on student learning, on school culture, on teacher effectiveness. Um, and research has shown how important the preparation is. And within that um, area of research, we've shown how important the internship is. Um, what we have not done, though, is really leverage that research in a way that is changing policymakers' minds about um, how we might fund that leadership development opportunity. No, that's, that's really helpful. That makes um, a lot of sense. Um, what the, the other thing I just wanted to, to quick you quick point out, um, you mentioned it, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, but this this notion of of, of kind of that that mentor um, in this in this um, kind of you know clinical based practice internship mm -hmm. residency whatever whatever you want to call it um, that person and sort of who that is and their record of success. Um, and the the support that that they're uh, providing these these principal candidates who are in a stage of you know really trying to collect this all collect all this information try to um, try to try to sort of move forward as as a sort of leader in the field uh, but that person who is that is that mentor is is really really critical in terms of who those folks are um, and sort of um, sort of their role in that process. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, they're not alone, obviously. So there's, there's usually a team of individuals. There's the, that um, field-based mentor um, who is typically the principal at the, at the school where the intern is working. Um, then they also have their advisor from the, from the university. And then that person is, you know, working with probably, I don't know, 10 or, you know, sometimes 15 different interns at the same time and they, you know, meet on an ongoing basis and make sure that the, that the, um, the experiences that the, that the candidate is getting are, you know, reflect the plan that was laid out at the beginning of the, of the experience. Um, and in some places, um, like the University of Illinois Chicago is a good example. 
there's also another element um, that comes in, and this is through the district um, university partnership, and that is a, a an additional coach. Um, and what's really neat about that kind of a model is that this coach is there while the individual is in their internship, and then they stick with them through their first couple of years as an education leader. Hmm so that they are getting ongoing support. Um, and, you know, and the coach too provides kind of the, um, another set of, um, of, uh, of another perspective on, you know, what they're going through as well as, you know, using coaching, um, coaching protocols helps the, helps the candidate kind of discover their, discover their own answers to um, a lot of the, the questions that they might have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that those are those are very, very um, important points of it. That is that this notion of a team model um, is 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 absolutely right. Um, great. Well, let's uh, let's shift gears um, a little bit. Um, wanted to um, take a few minutes to discuss um, the PCEL standards. Um, and we're going to talk about what those are for, for folks who might not be fully aware um, and have a, a discussion about sort of um, the impact on the field and um, sort of where we are in terms of implementation and, and all those things. Uh, so first things first, uh, what are the professional standards for educational leaders? The professional standards for educational leaders or PCEL um, are the national leadership standards. So they were um, created in uh, 2015 and they essentially replace um, a, a previous set of standards, which were called ISLIC, or the Interstate School Leadership Licensure Consortium Standards. And um, sometimes people are a little uh, confused as to why, <laughs> why this new name. And um, the, the standards were renamed actually because ISLIC as an organization does not exist any longer. And the, um, and the committee um, that was led by the Council for Chief State School Officers and the National Policy Board for Educational Administration really wanted to have language that represented, you know, what the standards actually were. So these standards are, um, they are used in a variety of different ways. They, um, they are aspirational uh, in the way that they've written. They provide kind of a, um, a sense of what leadership should look like um, within effective schools. And um, they also are sometimes used within um, uh, evaluation um, systems uh, within the, the state level. Um, also, they have um, been adopted um, by ETS um, in, in their most recent version of the school leadership licensure assessment, which are being, um, which is used in a lot of different states for their certification and so forth. Um, and the other question that we are often asked about the PCEL standards is, um, you know, is why did you need to update them in 2015? Um, and that's also a very, um, very good, very fair question. The ISLIC standards were first created in 1996. And um, at that time, um, if you can kind of take your memory uh, back that far, um, that was actually before No Child Left Behind was passed. 
Wow, so there, the, was, there was life before No Child Left Behind. Right? I know. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? So, <laughs> so even though, you know, uh, the, the country was kind of moving in the direction of accountability, if you take a look at the 1996 ISLIC standards, you will notice that there's not a lot of focus on data or on any of the, the things that we kind of associate with, um, with accountability, you know, the mm -hmm. Um, the probably the closest thing that you'll see in there is the is the word supervision of, of the teaching staff. Um, yeah, so you know that happened, and then after No Child Left Behind, of course, we've had you know Race to the Top and just a whole variety of other um, Common Core standards, and you know just quite a few significant national and state level trends around accountability and standards and so forth. Um, now the standard the ISLIC standards were um, updated in 2008, but there is very little difference between the, 2000, the 1996 and the 2008 um, sets of standards. We aren't completely sure why that is, um, but the, the footprint of the standards are pretty similar. Um, the other reason that uh, we really needed to, to update the standards is that um, the ISLIC standards made very little mention of technology at all, and yet technology is having a significant impact on education today. And the rate of change in terms of technology um, and uh, how it is kind of reshaping education for a number of students across the country um, really makes that a, a critical gap um, within the ISLIC standards. And then third, um, folks just really didn't feel like um, there was enough uh, emphasis on issues of equity and cultural responsiveness, um, particularly given how demographics are changing and yet the teaching population and leadership population is still pretty significantly white and middle class. And so there was a, um, a, a need to really address that gap as well. And then the final thing is that um, the standards have really had a, a fairly strong focus on um, academic press, but they haven't necessarily had a strong focus on um, student well-being and trying to support those aspects of, of the whole child. And so I would say that those are kind of the, the four critical ways in which the, um, which the PSEL standards are different from um, the ISLIC standards. Okay, uh, got it. So. Just to give us a quick um, overview of kind of the the process in terms of uh, how they were developed, we you explained kind of the why. So, so, yeah. so the yeah. how are they? Yeah. So um, we took the 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 why, and we um, we talked with uh, folks in the policy board, and the policy board members agreed that um, there was a significant reason to. Um, revise the ISLIC standards. And then we, um, we were able to get resources from the Wallace Foundation to do this. Um, we knew too that it was really important uh, that we reach out to the field to ensure that, um, that the standards really reflected um, excellence in practice as well as the um, what leaders saw as critical changes within the field and what they what they felt like was um, was coming down the pike. Mm -hmm. So 
we set up a number of task forces in order to get this done. Um, we had a research group that was mining the research on effective leadership practice and um, in the context of, of schooling. Um, we had a team that was um, engaged in uh, field knowledge and that group reached out. Um, in fact, uh, Gail Connolly, who's uh, the former executive director of NAESP, um, was the co-chair of, mm -hmm. of that task force. And they, um, through focus groups and surveys, um, did a really marvelous job of reaching um, thousands of field leaders and also um, individuals who prepare leaders and, um, and folks in the states and, and just in, uh, and teachers and, and families as well to get their input on um, what they saw as, as the need in terms of education leadership. We also had a group that was looking at the law and, and state codes, um, primarily because we were interested in knowing how many states had actually used the language ISLIC um, within their state codes and how difficult it was going to be um, for states to actually adopt a new set of standards. And then um, we also had a committee that was looking at tools that were aligned to the ISLIC standards to get a sense of you know, how much of a lift it was going to be for the field to make a switch if, you know, if our if our um, revision process was more than just a revision, but was actually a, a, a big overhaul, which it was. Um, all signs pointed to an overhaul was overdue. And um, we took the research, we took the insight from the field, and um, there was a, a several committees that, um, that once at a, one at a time uh, took that data and began um, creating a set of standards uh, about them. The standards were um, sent out to the field um, for commentary. That uh, commentary and feedback was taken very, very seriously and resulted in some significant changes to the standards. And um, the, uh, the final set um, were finished in around, uh, I believe, November of 2015. And um, the big difference, I've, I've already told you the content difference between uh, ISLIC and PSEL, but another big difference is that ISLIC standards, there were only six of them. And with the PSEL standards, there's, there are actually 10 of them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to, just to, just want to underscore what something that you really, um, talked about there, which was the, the idea about sort of engaging the field um, in this policy. And um, of course, um, we feel, you know, we feel very strongly about that in terms of, of these policies, both in terms of getting these policies right, certainly the policies that impact the field, but also thinking about the sustainability of, of these things, the, the success of implementation, right? Um, and so that's just a, a really critical piece of this um, and that you sometimes <laughs> often uh, actually see and unfortunately is too often these things um, you know I've heard it described are like done to uh, principals or teachers and, and not with them and so um, it's, it, it, it's really great that um, you know the field was engaged in, in such a in such a meaningful way um, yeah. so the let's so we so you talked about kind of the, the creation of them and, and, and how they're developed and why um, so where 
where are we now? How, how many states have adopted either PCL kind of, kind of wholesale or their own sort of state-created ones that are sort of based on, on, on PCL? There are about 15 currently that are in the process of, of either adopting or adapting them. And each time I check, um, it's usually about one or two more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think uh, states have a hard time um, just kind of turning and adopting something. Often what we're probably going to see is a lot more states that adapt than um, to sort of outright adopt the standards. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's in play is that um, the you know uh, national federal federal legislation like um, like race to the top and and um, a variety of other different things that um, that occurred uh, within the last ten years required a lot of work at the state level around standards and so many states have been in engaged in standards development um, in in pretty significant ways, um, making them a little reluctant to let go of that work and and begin begin anew. Um, So we're seeing a little bit of um, reluctance to start that process up again. Um, But, uh, you know, Typically, states and um, other organizations will every you know every five years or so renew their standards. So we're um, we're expecting that over the next year that we will probably see a double in the number uh, that have adopted them right now, just because of the kind of the place that we are in the um, in the in the state kind of process for um, standards adoption. Got it. Got it. So what's a, what's like a, there's, there's, there's 10 of them. What's like a concrete um, sort of experience or, or skill or knowledge that uh, a principal candidate would get or receive or experience uh, as a result of of their state um, adopting the PCL standards? Okay. So now you're talking about candidates. So I do want to just point out that Right after the PCEL standards were developed and approved, that then a second group uh, went to work to develop the aligned set of preparation standards, and those are called the National Education Leadership Preparation Standards. And I headed up that um, that committee. And um, the reason why we actually need two sets of standards and not just can, can't just use the PCEL standards is that. Um, Remember, I, rem- I mentioned that the PCL standards are kind of aspirational. They're also kind of career spanning. They're supposed to be relevant for teacher leaders and principals and district level leaders. And, um, and you're just supposed to see yourself in the standards. Well, for leadership preparation, um, we need to be a little more specific than that. So we took the PCL standards and we, de- we broke it down into a developmental framework for each one of the standards and elements. And we identified what would you expect of a brand new, newly minted leader to be able to know and do? And um, uh, then we, we created um, that type of developmental framework, both for a building level leader, principalship, and district level leader. Um, and we did that for two reasons. Uh, there are primarily within university preparation programs, um, programs that 
develop principals and programs that develop district level leaders. So it was important that we make that differentiation. And the work that those two um, categories of people do has some similarities, but it also has some pretty significant differences. And those differences, you know, are in terms of the knowledge that they need, but also in terms of the skill sets um, that they need. And then, of course, their internships need to be pretty significantly different. Um, so anyway, coming back to your question. So if, for example, I was um, developing somebody who was supposed to be an advocate for, um, or is supposed to be able to be a culturally, culturally responsive leader. Um, the way that that is framed within the NELP standards is that that individual should be able to support inclusion, that individual should be able to ensure that, um, that resources are allocated in a way that's not just equitable, but that leads to equitable results. Um, that that individual should be able to um, address matters of equity and cultural responsiveness um, in their interactions with teachers, so teacher supervision, teacher development, that sort of thing. So what might they see in a preparation program? Well, um, one example might be learning how to do an equity audit of a school. Um, so they are gathering data, they are reviewing that data, um, from everything from student achievement data to teacher assignment data to um, student absentee to engagement in extracurricular activities, um, assignment to special education uh, classrooms, et cetera, et cetera. And they would look through that for, um, for signs of over-identification or an equitable distribution based on student needs and so forth and so on. And so they would be able to use that information in a variety of ways. Um, let's say that they were linking that to um, the standard on strategic planning. They could use that information in planning. If they were linking it to um, teacher supervision, they could use it in that way. If they were linking it to um, their work in managing the organization and particularly around resource use, um, they would be able to draw in on that equity audit in that way. So that's just one example. No, that's great. That's great. Yeah, and I, I encourage uh, folks listening to, um, if you haven't already, uh, to 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 take a look at at um, at these standards, both both PCEL and and NELP. Um, you know, it covers everything. I think probably that um, a lot of practicing principals already already do on on a daily basis. Um, but a lot of these things, um, you know, provide a frame for things like know setting a vision and um, yep. instructional leadership and engaging families and, and sort of all these things but it, it it provides that that frame and around sort of what what folks should be able to know and, and know and, and do um, sort of in practice um, so that's really great I uh, question though on this idea that um, kind of it, it spans the the career so mm -hmm. how what's the vision in terms of um, what it should look like uh, for uh, you know, a, a someone preparing to be a principal and then into their sort of principalship, what does that alignment look like across sort of all of those those pieces? So the NELP standards have operationalized what it looks like at the beginning, 
And um, to my knowledge, Danny, so far, I don't know of any models that have actually taken it, taken the P-cell um, and operationalized what it looks like as a, a, a three-year leader um, and what it might look like as a, um, as a leader who is kind of at an advanced level. Mm-hmm. Although, um, it, when, the is, when the ISLIC standards were adopted, a number of states actually did do that. Um, so, and they used that then as part of their statewide evaluation system. So I imagine that somebody is working on that, but, um, currently I am not aware of that work. Yeah, no, no, got it. That makes a lot of sense. I think that, but the notion, right, is that, that, that what you're receiving in your, um, preparation program in, in terms of what you're expected to, to sort of know to become principal mm-hmm. and then having mm-hmm. similar conversations around, um, you know, similar, you know, um, basically the, the same standards when you're going through an evaluation, you know, 10 years into your career, but there's some type of alignment, even common language um, is, I mean, it's a, it's a noble goal, um, certainly, but, but one that, you know, if achieved, uh, I, I, I think would, would, would be a very positive influence on, on the field, no? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, the the idea of of leadership progression I mean this is actually part of the standards too that that um, and it's new to the standards this notion that a leader is um, should be thinking about their own leadership and how it develops over time and they should be thinking about the leadership of others so for example if you're a district level leader you should be developing and tapping and providing opportunities for others to become leaders. And you should also be investing in, in your own leadership development. You know, the idea that, you know, you have learned everything you needed to learn as a result of participating in a, in a graduate level program is, you know, that's, that's a fallacy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, the, it, I think le- learning is an enduring challenge. It's something that uh, as context changes, as challenges change, as, technology advances as knowledge advances we too have to have to um, make sure that we are keeping up with those changes absolutely yeah and just and just even uh, to, to step back just just a second we we jumped in and started talking PCL standards and and sort of NELP standards but you know what we're talking about here in, in, in terms of standards is when you think about uh, a principal pipeline and what you know states and, and districts do to systematically, recruit, prepare, support, evaluate, um, extend the reach of, you know, leaders um, in schools. When we're talking about standards, we're, we're talking about really the sort of the fundamental underpinnings of, of all of those things. And, and, and if you can get that right as a starting point, um, it can have a sort of cascading effect on, on all these other uh, pieces of that continuum. Absolutely. Yeah. You said that perfectly. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so just one last last uh, point on or question, I guess, on on these PCL standards, these, these NELP standards. Um, in thinking about NAESP members, folks who might be listening to this podcast, um, how how can they play a role in in sort of the implementation of these standards, improving them, um, ensuring that 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 they stay sort of you know relevant to the field? I think there are a couple of things that NAESP members can do. Um, first of all, I would highly recommend that people get it get familiar with them. Um, these are really 
really strong set of standards. And, you know, like we were talking earlier, you know, they're based on research and they're also based on um, knowledge from the field. And they're not just words on paper. They, are act they actually reflect high quality practice within schools. And so if leaders are really interested in understanding you know, how their own practice compares to what would be considered an, you know, an aspirational description of the principalship, I would highly recommend that, you know, they read through these and consider them kind of a, um, a touchstone for their own practice. Um, a second thing that I would recommend, and this goes back to your question of um, how many states have adopted these standards. Um, I would recommend that that principals get involved in advocating to their states to adopt the PSL standards, you know, whether they adopt them or adapt to them, to get in the game because, um, you know, the the ETS, you know, licensure tests are adopting the PSL standards. Um, you know, Valed used to be, which is a 360 evaluation, used to be aligned to ISLIC. I would imagine that that is going to be updated, as will other tools like that. Um, the Inspire 360 has already been um, has been um, updated to be aligned with the PSL and NELP standards. So, if states are not paying attention to these standards, the rest of the field and and knowledge development and tools are paying attention, and you don't want to have um, systems out of alignment. The, the best case scenario for our field would be that everyone is basically working towards the same set of standards. Hmm. Um, you know what I mean? And so mm -hmm. I highly recommend that people, if you're in a state, you know, where um, the state has not yet um, entertained the idea of doing this, my own state of Virginia is one of those, hmm. um, to, to really advocate um, for their adoption. Um, and then the third thing I would say is, uh, Getting involved in your professional organizations like NAESP um, and, and other professional associations is really important. The, the reason why we were able to have such incredibly rich um, input from the field, both in terms of our initial outreach to the field and then also in terms of um, the comments that they made on the initial drafts of the standards, is because of the engagement of uh, individuals, you know, like the members of NAESP. And, um, you know, that's a, also a benefit of membership is having that opportunity to engage in those conversations that are going to shape the field. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, those are, that, those are um, really, really great um, ideas and, and, and recommendations, um, which really goes into my kind of my last and final question, which I, I try to ask ask folks who have um, who have joined the podcast and 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 just to say thank you so much, um, you know, Michelle for for joining uh, this podcast. It's been really really insightful, and uh, you you obviously have such a ton a ton of knowledge on this stuff. And I'm I'm shaking my head as I'm listening to you, just just learning learning everything you're you're saying. So it's it's been really great. Uh, so 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 thank you. Uh, but my, my last question is just, uh, um, just to, on that, that piece that you, you touched on in terms of, um, you know, principles and, and, and sort of advocating and, um, and thinking about how they can use their voice, um, in this conversation. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm always sometimes struck at, at, at sometimes, um, the, the power just even an individual principal, uh, talking to a school board, uh, talking to their, you know, their state rep or maybe their, their state school board. In, in, in sort of weighing in on, 
on a particular topic. Um, so just 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 for a minute, what what's kind of just to jump off what you're already saying there, but what's kind of that that what do you have to say about that in terms of principals using their voice in in these debates and the impact that you know it can have? I think it can have a tremendous impact, and um, I think it's a it's it's an important responsibility. You know, for many many years, um, principals were cautioned against. Um, getting engaged in these types of conversations. Don't get political. Don't you know? Don't you know? Leave the leave the safety of your school or school district um, to to engage in policy level conversations. And yet, who better to carry the message of what is happening within public schools and the challenges you know that are that are facing leadership and and teaching and and the educational enterprise in general other than those who are leading those organizations you know we've got our fingers on the pulse of of public education um and i think it absolutely does matter you know many um many elected leaders do not necessarily hear uh, from their constituents and that is just um, really sad and, and disappointing and you know sometimes it can you know a, a 10 phone calls can make the difference in terms of how an individual votes as to whether or not to support something that is um, really important uh, to public education um, versus you know uh, not supporting it so I would say Danny that it's absolutely important that, um, that leaders get engaged in these conversations and that you know if they um, have the time to to be informed wonderful on their own but if not the organizations like NAESP are really important sources of information on how to get involved um, what the latest research is um, the, the the different um, uh, takes on you know what would happen if if, um, if this bill passed and what would happen if it doesn't um, I think that that is just a really critical role of organizations like NAESP, and you know you wouldn't be able to do it without those members in the field. Absolutely, that is absolutely correct. Uh, well, thank you again. This has been a, this has been a lot of fun, and um, I um, I hope folks listening found it um, uh, as as uh, insightful as I did. I like I said, I I sure learned a lot, and um, it was just it was really great to hear about uh, all things principal prep and and PSL standards <laughs> and all of that. Um, I I'll say I'll I'll um I'll include um I'll either tweet out or sort of email out. Um, UCEA has some some great briefs um, and policy papers on a lot of these topics. Um, all research based, all really 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 good stuff. So I'll I'll be sure to share that with with folks. Um, but thanks for but thanks again for for coming on and we'll yeah we'll, absolutely it was it was a pleasure, Danny. I really appreciate the invitation. You bet. Have a good one. Thanks so much. You too. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.